28th of March 1973, Fortitude Valley, Queensland. Fire breaks out in a nightclub killing 15 people. This is the story of the Whiskey A Go Go nightclub fire. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Well, this week we go back to 1973 to a place called Fortitude Valley, which is walking distance almost northeast of the Brisbane CBD. Nowadays, it's been cleaned up a bit with urban renewal programs, and it was a huge shopping district in the 50s and 60s. But the place fell into a bit of disrepair during the 70s, and brothels, illegal gambling dens, and the seedier side of life flourished in the town. Criminals and corruption were the order of the day, overseen by crooked cops and corrupt politicians. Now, the main references I will use tonight is a book I was able to get from Amazon called The Whiskey Go-Go Massacre, Murder, Arson and the Crime of the Century by Jeff Plunkett. Also, my usual newspaper.com subscription where I use the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspapers of the day. Also, I've got some court records. So along with all the vice and corruption in Fortitude Valley, you need a place to party as well. On the corner of Amelia Street and St Paul's Terrace, there was, and still is today, a two-storey building. You can look it up on Google Street View if you like, but if you can imagine the bottom floor being a showroom, so it's one big open space. It was a tile showroom at the time called Modern Tiles, And then there was an upstairs area with the same open plan. On the Amelia Street and St Paul's terrace sides of the building were basically all glass on the ground floor and windowed upstairs with an awning above the ground floor and like big eaves over the top floor. With the tile shop downstairs, the upstairs was suitable for a nightclub and in April 1971, the Celebrity Cafe operated out of the venue until they went broke five months later. A band manager named John Hannay saw the potential in the 3,300 square foot or 306 square metre venue and approached Brian and Ken Little, who'd been booking entertainers through Hannay's business. The rent was cheap and on a weekly basis. It had two bars, a stage, kitchen and dressing rooms ready to go. With a bit of painting and minimal equipment, the place could turn a quick profit. So in March 1972, the liquor licence was transferred to Brian Little and a three-year lease with options for two more three-year leases was signed and the Whiskey A Go-Go Club was born. The place was open Monday through to Saturday and it started off about 7 or 8pm until 3am with bands playing and apparently go-go dancers on the stage gyrating away. 
As I said before, Fortitude Valley in the 70s was a bit run down. It had brothels and illegal casinos. With that brought organised crime, corrupt cops and the corrupt politicians. So running any business, let alone a nightclub, meant you may get a visit from some goon requiring protection money, or you might just tread on someone's toes and have any multitude of problems. So the front entrance of the club was on the Amelia Street side of the building. Stairs led to the top floor, and to the left was the main bar. Further along the right-hand side was the artist's dressing rooms, the rear stairs used as a fire escape, the back bar, staff rooms in an office, toilets and a liquor storeroom. Furthest from the main entrance was the dance floor and stage area. In the main part of the venue, there were seating and tables for 400 people. Inside the decor was black, black and more black with a little bit of silver put in. It was an instant hit with the patrons with just $250 a week rent the Little Brothers were pulling in 1500 net a week. Great money for 1973. However, either through fraud, embezzlement or just plain mismanagement, the Whiskey A Go-Go would end up in financial difficulties towards the end. Okay, for any business of this type, there were fire inspections and the first one had been completed on the venue just before the Littles took it over and it passed. The second inspection came in mid-1972 and the fire board were concerned about the reception partition that had been illegally installed near the front stairs, but they allowed it to remain. In September 1972, the Licensing Commission demanded that the windows in the toilet be sealed up to help stop noise pollution, and for these windows to be riveted shut. They demanded a fire exit sign to be installed near the rear stair exit and for all boxes and other junk like old cooking oil containers to be taken and cleared away from the fire stair area. The windows were riveted shut, but the fire stair area sort of hadn't properly been cleared or maintained cleared after that inspection. So, for the time, the place was probably reasonably safe, but still, if anything were to happen, there were only two exits, and both of those were not clearly visible. With around 100 tables in the middle of the room, evacuation of the place could be difficult. Now, on a side note, there's this place called Lucifer's Disco in Walking Street, Pattaya, Thailand, that I went to years ago. And it had an open bar area at the front of the building, but then had this little hallway that funneled you down into the disco area itself. Now, I don't know if it's changed at all today, but I always felt uneasy in this place because if there ever was a fire, and especially if the lights went out, Everyone would have to try to funnel back up through this long hallway to get out. But anyway, let's go on to the Whiskey-A-Go-Go story. So we have this rundown area that's become a magnet for all things criminal, and the Whiskey-A-Go-Go is quite a popular joint to hang out. On a side note, Lenny McPherson was known to visit the place. Now Lenny, I did an episode on him with my mates Tara and Barney from Bloody Murder last year or the year before, but yeah, the criminal element hung out at the Whiskey. With food, drinks and live music, it could get busy not only on a Friday and Saturday night, but during the week it had plenty of patrons as well. Now let me introduce you to one of the main characters in this saga. John Andrew Joshua Stewart, born the 15th of September 1940 in Brisbane. He'd attended Southport 
and Surface Pari- Paradise Surface Paradise State School. He excelled in swimming, which his mother encouraged to keep him healthy. His father became a little bit disabled and would often drunkenly bash his wife and the kids. He also gambled and thought the children were an unwanted burden. He just wanted his wife to cook, clean and take care of him. Stuart's father would take him to Surface Paradise at times to help him steal from parked cars. I mean, that's father of the year stuff. Stuart would end up in and out of trouble. He did time at Westbrook Home for Boys at Toowoomba. And like last week's episode with Peter Stephen Hay, these boys' homes were more like criminal breeding grounds rather than a place to rehabilitate. He liked to steal cars and even stabbed a guy that nearly died from the injuries. And he's still just a kid. As he got older, he was known for always causing a fight at many of the bars and clubs he frequented. He was a violent, out-of-control, psychopath, rapist, murderous scum, apparently. Well, with an upbringing like that he had, you'll see why police would come to call him Australia's most dangerous criminal. To go into detail about Stuart's list of offences would easily require another episode, and I don't think it really justifies it when we're talking about the whiskey. Take it from me, Stuart is just dangerous. Stuart was released from a Sydney prison after serving six years for attempted murder in July 1972. It wasn't long before he left for Brisbane, apparently, and this is in big air quotes, after being bailed for some other offence by an underworld figure. He hooked up with an old criminal associate called Billy McCulkin, who will feature much later in the story. Shortly after he arrived in Brisbane, he contacted Sunday Sun reporter Brian Bolton and told him that an empty club would be firebombed and after that the Whiskey Go-Go would be firebombed but this time when the club was full of people. Now, Brian Bolton was an old-school local crime journo. He spent a lot of time in the streets trying to pick up leads for stories, often in the seedy underbelly of the Fortitude Valley bars, clubs and streets. He would drink with the cops to try and get leads on what was going on and even had a gun which he took with him when meeting up with criminals who had some info for him. He liked to drink, he smoked heavily but he kept himself fit boxing. The boxing also helped out when he inevitably found himself in dangerous situations. Stewart, sometime early in January, called Bolton and told him he wanted to meet and tell him about the biggest thing ever to happen in Australia. They met at the Hacienda and Stewart told Bolton about an extortion racket on all the restaurants and nightclubs in Brisbane. Stuart went on to say he'd been asked to do some fronting for the Sydney-based crime gang, but when he found out it was going to be bigger than he was told, he didn't feel he wanted any part of it, but couldn't back out. Stuart said that they were going to blow up a club that was closed at the time and empty of patrons. They do this as a warning, and if no one takes any notice, they will blow up a club during operating time with patrons inside. Stuart said that he'd been bailed out of jail by a bondsman who wanted the favour returned by Stuart by making himself known around the clubs and restaurants without getting into too much trouble and to just let the owners worry that something might be happening. Stuart then told Bolton that at first he didn't realise they were going to bomb premises that were open and full of people and that because he'd already been in all of these places that if anything did go down, 
that he would be the number one suspect. Bolton asked if he knew which club was to be bombed and Stuart replied, the whiskey a go-go. Now, if this story of Stuart's was true, Bolton had a big story. Bolton immediately called the police commissioner Ray Whitrod and Inspector Don Becker, chief of the Criminal Intelligence Unit or CIU, at their homes, but no one answered. When he was able to get Becker a few days later, both discussed that maybe Stuart was alibying himself if there were to be a bombing. That is, he does the bombing, but uses the fact that he told the press and cops about it before it happened, that would be enough to prove he didn't do it. The other thing they discussed was that there really wasn't enough money in Brisbane nightclubs to dis- to extort out of them, and it may just be another of Stuart's psychotic ramblings. Now, Stuart not only had a journo contact, but he also had a Detective Sergeant First Class Basil Hicks as a contact. Now, in amongst all the corruption and vice in the Queensland Police Force at the time, Hicks was a clean copper and Stuart trusted him and sort of became an informer for him. In meetings with Hicks, Stuart hinted that Sydney criminal elements were going to come up to Brisbane to extort clubs and restaurants and that he was supposed to be their front man. Again, he told Detective Hicks that he didn't want anything to do with it, but he couldn't say no to the guy that had just bailed him out. Stuart refused to tell Hicks the names of those behind it all. He also didn't tell him the name of the club that would be bombed with patrons inside. Now, on a side note, in regards to the attempted murder conviction he'd just been released from prison on, well, a month or so before he was released, he told his journo contact, Brian Bolton, that he wanted to meet with the New South Wales Police Commissioner to review the attempted murder conviction, which he was doing time for. And he was about to be released because he still maintained his innocence. And if he was ignored, he would pack a light aircraft with gelignite, fly over the opera house and blow it up. You know, we, we let this crazy freak out of jail. But okay, back to the whiskey story. Now, while all this is going on, in the months before the firebombing, Stuart had been trying to cause trouble with the bar manager at the Whiskey A Go-Go at the time, John Hannay threatening him and causing a bit of damage inside the club. Stuart was trying to act like some kind of tough man and with a violent, loose cannon like Stuart, anything could happen. Stuart also approached Brian Little, the co-owner of the club, and his bouncer, Johnny Bell, to tell them that a couple of crims from Sydney were going to come to Brisbane to take over the clubs and that he was going to be used to take the protection money. Stuart told Little that he didn't want to do this, but the Crims were going to bomb a club if they weren't taken seriously. Stuart told them it wouldn't be a weekly thing, rather he would be asked to collect a lump sum. Brian Little, well, he didn't really show any interest. He thought Stuart was full of shit. Anyway, at the time, the club was in serious financial troubles and there was just no money to give. Johnny Bell, the bouncer, told Stuart that if these Crims from Sydney were serious then they should talk to him directly. Now, <laughs> Stuart got a bit riled up over this. He got a bit ragey. And again, he told him what he said was true. Eventually, he became a bit mad and incoherent. Again, I'd like to direct you to the book I'm using as a reference, The Whiskey Go-Go Massacre, Murder, Arson and the Crime of the Century by Jeff Plunkett. You'll see how scattered Stuart was in making multiple meetings with Hicks the Cop and Bolton the Journo 
With wild accusations that people were out to kill him, others were plotting to stand over the Brisbane nightclubs, all that sort of stuff. Now, Brian Bolton, he published an article in his paper on January the 14th titled Death Threat to Club Bosses, outlining the story Stuart had told him. Then on the 25th of February, when the Torino Club was firebombed, it did get a few people who'd heard of Stuart's story. Well, let's say it got their attention a bit. Brian Little, owner of the whiskey, contacted the police and his solicitor about what Stuart had told him. At around this time, a friend of Stuart's named James Richard Finch had just flown into Brisbane. Stuart had paid for his travel and whenever he introduced Finch, he used the name Doug. Doug Jones. Now we'll get to this criminal later on. On Wednesday the 7th of March 1973, as the doors of the Whiskey A Go-Go opened at the evening, the staff were ready to go and a steady stream of guests filtered in. Now, there was no security on the door this night. Rather, they'd done away with the bouncer on the street entrance three weeks previously and made do with one upstairs, the ex-boxer John Bell. Now, he just roamed around the top floor. On this night, the Deltones were playing and they were a resident band at the time, being booked to play nightly at the Whiskey and another club owned by the Little Brothers called Checkers. John Bell recalled that at the peak of the night, there were about 80 people in the club. By 2am, as he finished up closing off the till on the reception desk, there were still around 50 patrons, mostly gathered around the table near the stage area. The Deltones were the headlining band and they were backed up by six-piece outfit Trinity, who'd only just started that week. They came back on after the Deltones finished at around 1.55am and finished a three-song set at 2.06am. Now shit was about to get real. Now without going into minute detail on who exactly were in the club at the time, you can read that in the book I'm using for research if you like. There was a wedding party and another party at the front of the club, another group in the centre tables, and a group of military personnel in front of the dance floor. The six Trinity band members were either seated in front or standing around the stage. At 2.07am, truck driver Michael D, who during the night had become blotto drunk, and several times had left the building and come back in to drink more, in fact on one occasion he fell down the stairs, Well, Dee staggered down the stairs, leaving via that front entrance. He tried to take a piss against the wall, but then staggered around the corner of the building, tripping over a low chain fence into a small garden. As he laid sprawled in the garden bed, he saw a flash. Someone had rolled two 18-litre or four-gallon drums of petrol into the foyer of the Whiskey Go-Go. With no bungs in the top, they quickly emptied and soaked into the carpet. Then a lit match was thrown in and up it went, exploding into flames. This blocked off the main entrance as flames and thick smoke rose up the stairway and into the main area of the club. Now, because the windows had been riveted shut, the air conditioning system expelled air through vents on the roof and received fresh air via the front door. This made the club like a giant chimney sucking the smoke and fire right up through the stairway and into the club. Although one fire extinguisher was used on the fire, it was useless, and the staff and patrons, probably around 40 or 50 people or more, all tried to get out via the fire exit, the toilet windows, and the street-facing windows. 
Several people were able to smash windows and escape into the onto the awning on the St Paul's terrace side of the building. Some smashed the toilet windows. Now those awning windows on St Paul's terrace side, behind it was black cloth, so you couldn't really even tell there was windows. But a few people realised, smashed, and were able to get out that way. The fire escape door. Now that was closed, and rather than have a panic bar to open where you just push it, it had a complicated mechanism to open it. Luckily, Francis Longhurst, the whiskey's doorman, was well acquainted with the procedure and was able to open the door and keep it open for others. Several were able to make it out of the fire escape, but as the lights had gone out, they found that drums of cooking oil that had been stored at the fire escape had been tipped over in the stampede. Now, that was making it hard to stay upright exiting the pitch black club, which was now filling with smoke. Remember how the club had been told to clear this area of rubbish in the cooking oils and put an illuminated exit sign up? Well, that obviously didn't happen. After only 60 seconds, the whiskey a go-go was filled with smoke and those outside, including local residents, could hear screams coming from those still trapped inside. Soon, the fire brigade was on the scene after being alerted by a passing patrol car. Now, a constable McSherry, he got on the radio and he said, From car 525 to VKR, the whiskey a go-go is on fire. I want the ambulance and fire brigade advised. Now, this was at 2.08am. After parking his patrol car and hearing those still trapped upstairs begging to be rescued, he got back on police radio and said, The position is serious. Get more fire brigades, more ambulances and more assistance. Now, from this kind of enclosed fire, you will get a build-up of deadly carbon monoxide and other toxic gases, such as cyanide from the vinyl-covered chairs. Eventually, these toxic gases will heat up and rise to the ceiling, spreading throughout the club. As the temperatures rose, this thick layer of gas extends towards the bottom of the floor and as the temperature gets to 600 degrees centigrade or 1,112 Fahrenheit, everything in the place spontaneously combusted, blowing out all the windows on the top floor. This flashover took just four minutes to occur. The fire brigade arrived at 2.13am and the place was well alight. Fireys and others tried to enter the building to help anyone who may be alive to escape. However, once they were able to get inside, they found only bodies and no pulses. Eventually the fire was out and there was a grisly sight awaiting these first responders. They would find 15 bodies inside the club, 10 men and 5 women, 2 of the Trinity band members, 3 staff members and 10 patrons. All died from carbon monoxide poison and were dead before the fire brigade even arrived. The victims were Colin William Falster, 19, Red Hill, he was a musician with the Trinity Band, Darcy Thomas Day, 22, Holland Park, a musician with Trinity, William David Nolan, 22, military policeman from Inderipoli, Ernest John Peters, 50, of Rockhampton, a farmer, Desmond John Peters, 31, a Rockhampton farmer, Carol Ann Green, 27, of Camp Hill, Wendy Leone Drew, 24, of Norman Park, Brian William Watson, 32, of Goodner, Peter Marcus, 23, of Petri Terrace, Faye Ellen Will, 19, of Nunda, 
Jennifer Denise Davey, 17, of New Farm. Desme Selma Carroll, 29, of New Farm. Leslie Gordon Pallanthorpe, 20, a Lance Corporal from Inderipoli. David John Weston Green, 19, of Norman Park. And Paul Zoller, a kitchen hand, from the National Hotel Queen Street. Now, this was the largest mass killing or murder in Australia up to that time. So, now, who did it? Well, the cops already had a prime suspect, and that was John Andrew Joshua Stewart, the guy who'd predicted it all, warned the press and the police. Before we go on, though, this wasn't the only fire in a Queensland nightclub. There was one at Alice's Cafe in Brunswick Street, Fortitude Valley, in December 1972, Torino's Nightclub in Ann Street on February the 23rd, 1973, and two at Checkers Nightclub in Elizabeth Street in early 1973. The Torino fire was actually the first club to be firebombed that Stewart had alluded to. Thankfully, it was empty at the time. The government put out a reward of $50,000 for information that would lead to convictions, including a free pardon to any associates that weren't directly involved with the actual commission of the offence. This was the largest reward in Australian history. Now, Stuart was picked up and questioned and then released. He did have an alibi, which did check out. Stuart had made himself known at several places around town when the whiskey was firebombed. He was at the Flamingo Club and asked the bouncer what time it was to get a witness with a timestamp. The cops then zeroed in on a James Richard Finch, an Englishman who'd flown into Australia just prior to the firebombing paid for by Stuart. As I said before, he was going under the name of Doug Jones. How did they know about Finch or Doug Jones? Well, we'll get to that soon. Now, John Stewart had a brother called Daniel Stewart. Now, (laughs) to make this clear, I will call John Stewart Stewart, I will call his brother Daniel Stewart, Daniel and James Finch will be either Doug or Finch. I mean, fuck's sake, when people have two first names, it just can make it so confusing, especially when you may be dozing off listening to this podcast. So, Stuart would take his new mate Doug around to the house on a couple of occasions. On the 10th of March, as I said, the government announced a $50,000 reward. And then on the 11th of March, Stuart... A guy called Attilio and his wife, Rose Stewart, Daniel Stewart's wife, and Daniel, they were all at Daniel's house at 12 Mankinna Street, Jindalee, that's southwest of Brisbane. They were having a barbecue, and at around 6 pm, James Finch, or Doug as he was known, turned up looking decidedly scruffy and unkempt. He cleaned himself up, and Stewart took him into a room and discussed the interview he'd just had with police earlier. Stuart told Finch that everything would be okay and let him read through a copy of the police interview. Attilio walked out the back where Daniel was barbecuing and Daniel asked if he wanted to come for a drive to get more drinks. In the car, Daniel told Attilio that he had to make a phone call as he was sure his brother John Stewart and the mysterious Doug or James Finch were the ones responsible for the firebombing of the whiskey. Even though John Stewart was his brother, still, 15 people had been killed. Daniel called police and told them where Stewart and Doug were and that he was sure they were the killers. 
Daniel and Attilio arrived back home and Stuart and Doug announced they were going out to the movies. Daniel quickly decided to concoct a ruse to distract Stuart and Doug so that they wouldn't leave before the cops showed up. Daniel started getting abusive towards his wife Rose and Attilio, with Attilio getting him in a headlock and they wrestled in the kitchen. Daniel screamed for Stuart to help and he did, long enough for the detectives to storm through the door and make an arrest. So John Stewart was now arrested, but Dougie, he'd escaped out the back. As they didn't have enough evidence at this moment to arrest Stewart for the firebombing, as they'd already interviewed him, they saw he had his knife on him and made up a charge to hold him downtown. Finch or Dougie returned to the house later that night and then walked to a local golf course and slept there. Next morning, Finch, or Dougie, he went back to Daniel's house and he fell asleep. At 9.15am, detectives arrived at the house and Dougie, he took off out the back again. A search out the back found Doug's passport, finally revealing his real name as James Richard Finch. Well, Finch, or Dougie, he'd later be arrested at the local shopping centre. In his interview, Finch told them his name was Doug Jones, but now they had his passport he pretty soon confessed that he'd been asked to come from London by Stuart to do a bit of standover and some clubs. But now he was mixed up in the deaths of 15 people. He told the cops to just shoot him and that he should have run from the cops so they would have shot him. Finch was born the 20th of December 1944 in East London. He also had a violent father and became a criminal. Finch came to Australia as a young boy and was almost immediately in trouble with the police. He ended up in Mount Penang Institute for Boys and then the Tamworth Institute for Boys. Now, as I've said before, these boys' homes were rough. Big-time criminal Arthur Nettie Smith said of Tamworth Institute of Boys, (laughs) he's a pretty rough guy. Tamworth Boys' Home was a real concentration camp. They treated the young boys like animals with daily bashings and starvation. I've been to the notorious Grafton Jail twice for a period of more than four years all told. I was systematically bashed daily, flogged into unconsciousness several times, but believe me, that was nothing compared to the treatment I got at Tamworth. Well, (laughs) there you go. Finch specialty, that was arson, and this is why Stuart had asked him to come to Brisbane to help him out. They'd known each other for years, having met in jail. Now back to the interview with Finch. The following statement is taken from the conversation between Detective Senior Sergeant Hayes and Finch. Finch said, Well, I will tell you the story, but before I do, I will tell you that it's all Johnny's idea. All I was to do was to start a bit of a fire downstairs with some petrol and frighten them. As you know, I went back to England last year and Johnny was writing to me and he told me about the business of trying to stand over the nightclubs in Brisbane to try to get money out of them. He wanted to know if I'd come out. I'd agreed because I'd do anything for him. Detective Hayes said, What was the agreement between you and John Andrew Stewart? Finch said, He told me that he would pay my fare out. He wanted me out here real bad to give the clubs a shake-up. When I arrived, Johnny met me at the airport and told me his plans. 
He told me that he was having trouble breaking into the protection racket with the clubs and it just needed a good scare to bring them to the party. He had ideas of getting a protection racket going. Detective Hayes then said, Did he tell you he hoped to succeed with this plan? Finch replied, Yes. He told me he'd studied psychology and that he'd worked out a plan to fool you coppers and to set himself up with a perfect alibi. I was to be kept in smoke and no one was to know that I was here. And all I had to do was start a couple of fires and then he would move in and start collecting and I was to get back out of the country. Detective Hayes then said, What do you expect to get out of John's protection plans? Finch replied, It was unlimited, Johnny told me, and that he would look after me and I just wanted to see him set up and he was going to take care of me. So, Finch told the detectives that Stuart had this idea to create a story that Sydney criminal gangs were going to extort Brisbane nightclubs and restaurants. Stuart had not been getting far with his so-called protection racket, and so Finch flew in from London to make a bit of a fire downstairs at the Whiskey A Go-Go. This, he hoped, would scare the clubs into paying him. But as we now know, that little fire killed 15 people. And by the way, it also injured around 40. The detectives took the statement, which was unsigned, into Stewart's interview room and told him that Finch had given him up. Now, they both briefly saw each other later, with Finch telling Stewart that he didn't sign the confession. Detective Senior Sergeant Hayes gave evidence that in company with a number of other police officers, he interviewed Stewart at the Watch House on March the 11th, 1973. The material part of this interview, which was corroborated by the other police officers, is as follows. We entered the interview room and I said, I intend to tell you certain things, but I warn you that you're not obliged to make any statement or answer any questions as anything you say will be recorded by Detective Sergeant Atkinson in his notebook in your presence and may be given later given in evidence. Do you understand? Stewart said yes. Detective Hayes said, do you want your solicitor to be present? Stewart said, no. What have you found out? Detective Hayes said, Today, James Richard Finch was located and admitted that he was imported by you from England about 10 days ago for the purpose of terrorising the nightclubs to further your plans of extortion. He's given us a record of interview and has admitted that at your instigation, he set fire to the Whiskey A Go-Go on the 8th of this month. Do you want to read it? And at that time, Stuart was offered a copy of the record of the interview that they'd obtained from Finch. Stuart then hit his head with both hands and said, No, I don't. I told the bastard to go through as soon as we knew 15 were dead. Now he's brought me undone. I went to a lot of trouble to set it up. We didn't mean to kill anyone. Stuart then hit his head with his hands again and said, I didn't light it. He did. Detective Hayes said, Do you wish to sign these notes? You're not obliged to. Stuart then said, No, I don't. Detective Hayes said, I'm arresting you on a charge of arson and 15 charges of murder. Stuart then didn't reply. Detective Hayes then accompanied Stuart to the charge section and at this time, Finch was there and he was unhandcuffed. Stuart said to Finch, Did you tell him everything about the fire? Finch said yes and at the same time he handed him a copy of the record of interview which he'd been supplied with and he said, I didn't sign it. Fifteen dead. Fifteen dead. 
Stewart then flicked over and read the record of the interview, and then he said to Finch, you were certainly loose-mouthed about it. Why didn't you keep quiet? At about 8.35pm, the charges were read out to Stuart and Finch. As each charge was read, Stuart would call out, I plead not guilty to that, and you're the same, Jim. And Finch would call out, not guilty too. They did likewise after each charge was read. Stuart then said to Finch, You needn't have told him I gave you the matches, Jim. Finch said, Well, Johnny, you did, but we'll have to try to beat these, Johnny. They were both charged with 15 counts of murder and arson, but they both pleaded their innocence. Long story short from here, they would be found guilty of the murder of 17-year-old Jennifer Denise Davey and sentenced to life inside. What about the others, you may say? Well, we're going to get to that. When the verdict was read out for Stuart, he denounced his brother Daniel for dobbing him in. Before he was sentenced, he told the court, The jury's verdict is wrong. I would know that better than any man. I wish to extend to my brother pity, to my mother sympathy. I would sooner have died as I intended to do than have my mother see her own flesh and blood testifying one against the other. May he choke on his caviar, which I suppose he will gain from his 30 pieces of silver reward. Both Stuart and Finch would maintain their innocence long after getting locked up. Now I'm going to leave the story at this point, but there is more to come next week as I go over some of the controversies that this case brought about. There's another murder, which only recently the perpetrators were brought to justice for, and we finally get a confession which is quickly withdrawn. So Islanders, here we have the product of a violent home, a young guy abused in the juvie system who goes on to escalate his criminal ways. He comes up with his complex story about Sydney crime gangs wanting to take over the Brisbane nightclub scene. He's not getting far with his scam, so he gets a mate, also from a violent home, to start a fire to try to make the nightclub owners take his warnings seriously. But the fire ends up killing 15 people. He and his mate get life. Now, it wasn't until 1996 that more people in one mass murder event would be killed in Australia when 35 people were murdered at Port Arthur in Tasmania by Martin Bryant. Now, this seems to be an open and shut case. Well, it isn't. Next week, as I said, I'll go over the aftermath of this case. There will be murders, confessions, retractions and a public inquiry that just never seems to eventuate. With Stuart and Finch innocent, next week on True Crime Island. So Islanders, that's it until next week. But before we go, there's the usual end of show stuff to go through. First thing, don't forget the YouTube channel is almost ready to roll. I've been doing the final testing this week. Now all my equipment has arrived. I've seen a lot of people have already subscribed, so please subscribe. I have a promo for an exciting new podcast that's just been released called Deadly Misadventures. It's a wondery exclusive series about the real-life stories for those who came face-to-face with death. Some live to tell the tale, while others succumb to their deadly misadventures. Justin from Generation Y and Tyler from Mind of Madness have come together to create deadly misadventures. In this series, they raise the questions, do our choices control our destiny, or or are we all just gamblers rolling the dice? Listen to to the end of the show, I'll run their promo. Now for the Patreon shoutouts, thanks to Jan Boys. Thank you so much, Jan. Fantastic. 
Tanisha Hine, thank you so much. And also Chris Carey. Boom Vakalunga to all my past, present, and of course these three new patrons. As you know, True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast, so you're not going to hear any ads, just some promos for my mate's podcast that I think you should check out. Also, become to become a patron, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland, and for as little as $1 a month, you too can help support the island. Also, Melissa, I did send you an email this week, so please reply so I can send out your reward. If you'd like to buy me a beer via PayPal, then go to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland and cheers. I have merch at truecrimeisland.threadless.com and I will be changing that shop a little bit soon. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing, also by sharing it with your friends and family. Use the hashtag Boomfuckalunga. All these links are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. Okay, that's about it. So, I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boomfuckalunga. Wondery Plus presents its newest podcast, Deadly Misadventures. Hosted by Justin from Generation Y and Tyler from the Minds of Madness. We'll bring you some of the most terrifying real-life stories of those who came face-to-face with death. Some who lived to tell the tale. While others succumbed to their deadly misadventures. I'm gonna do Doing bad things to you. You know the odds. The stakes are high. Care to take your chance with Lady Luck? To hear all Deadly Misadventure episodes exclusively ad-free, just visit wondery.fm slash deadly to start listening now. Doing bad things to you.